We want to welcome all of you and uh, so glad that you've uh, chosen to join us on this Saturday. Real opportunity here, real opportunity to hear. We also, by the way, want to welcome those who are uh, live streaming. We have a number of people from uh, even from uh, India and Hong Kong and just are grateful to have guests who are overseas being able to join us for our Bible conference this year. We've always believed that uh, our greatest resource is not a church building, it's not money, our greatest resource is people. And we want to invest in your spiritual lives, in your spiritual growth, and the knowledge that God has blessed us with so that you can uh, grow and be blessed and uh, be more like the Lord Jesus. So in that vein, we have invited a special guest this morning, and it is Dr. Michael Vlock. He is an accomplished uh, theologian who teaches uh, theology at the Master's Seminary, has taught at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary as well. He's taught at uh, uh, Master's Seminary for, for 11 years now and yep. uh, has, uh, has uh, outlasted even our old professors we've been talking and uh, just really a, a real treasure. I think you'll really enjoy him. Very clear-minded thinker. If you are familiar with the uh, new systematic theology that has come out back there, he really wrote the... Uh, the back end, the entire eschatology section of that. And so as a, as a, a commendable uh, systematic theology, I, I want to encourage you. They're on sale back there for only $30. It's the cheapest price you'll ever get it at. And so I do really, uh, really uh, am grateful that he's come to share with us this morning. Uh, I know him best when people come and talk to me about Dr. Vlock. I always have to scratch my head because I've always known him as Mike. He was my housemate almost 25 years ago, and so we have a lot of memories. Uh, we, we've been reminiscing for the past days about our old classmates, what have happened to them, and our old professors, so there's a, a long history there, but I will not uh, bore you with that at this time. Uh, just to let you know, he's an accomplished author. He's written a number of books, and I want to encourage you to continue to uh, consider some of them. Uh, has the Church Replaced Israel? Uh, a theological evaluation here of supersessionism, and hope that you'll consider that. It's really part of his doctoral work, I understand. And then also Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs and Common Myths, as well as Philosophy 101, The Big Idea. We have all of these back on the back uh, table. You can take a look at them later on. Um, but one of the things I've always appreciated about him is his clarity of thought, and uh, that's always important as a teacher. You know, I've had uh, very accomplished uh, professors in the past, and they would uh, be difficult for me to understand sometimes, but I think, Mike, you'll enjoy him, and I hope that you'll learn a, a good number of things, so uh, let's give him a warm welcome from our church. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everybody. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat for me on a Saturday morning to have so many people come to talk about what the scripture has to say about the future. So just really excited to be here. And and again, Joe, it's great seeing you again. We kind of lost track a little bit of each other for a while, but like I said, we went to to school from 92 to 95. And so we were roommates for for some of that period during there. And uh, Joe's Pretty much the same guy, humble guy, godly guy. He, he doesn't age a day. I mean, he, he looks the same as back then. And so I wish the same could be said for me, but I don't think that's the case. So, but anyway, this is just, this is just great. Uh, uh, obviously, staying at Joe's house, so it's kind of like we're roommates again. So it's kind of a, we've been telling stories. I, I think just going back and forth, we, I think there was around 26 people in our graduation class, something like that. I think we've already talked about 
20 of them in the sense of where they're at today, and praise the Lord, most of them are doing well and still in ministry, and so this is just a, uh, a treat, kind of just reminiscing about the past and catching up on a good friendship, so anyway, so it's a, it's a real treat here for me to be here. So um, what we're, gonna, we're going to be doing today and tomorrow is, uh, I like to call it a big picture study, uh, you know, I, I teach theology at the Master's Seminary, and, and the courses that I teach are geared more towards connecting the dots, connecting the, 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 the Bible passages and the theological points so that people can see the big picture. Um, oftentimes, with church and on sermons, and rightfully so, there's a lot of a study of uh, in-depth passages of Scripture. Sometimes a pastor may work through one or two or three verses, you know, sometimes more, whatever, but oftentimes there's a... a uh, kind of a microscopic look when you're looking at Scripture, which has to be there. I mean, that should be primary. But I also think it's good at times to, to, to look at the forest, too. You know, you have the trees, and then you have the forest. So sometimes it's good to look at multiple passages on a particular topic and to try to get the big picture. I, I like to think of the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle, where... Uh, it's probably been the last three years or so that I've started to get a little bit more interested in that. All of, I have four children, by the way, and a wife, Holly, and all of them are better than I am at uh, jigsaw puzzles. And, but anyway, one of the things that, uh, if you do it at all, you understand that you, you usually try to do the outer frame first. So if you can get the outer frame of the jigsaw puzzle, then you can start filling in the pieces. And so I, I would consider these next couple days to be kind of the, the outer frame, just to understand God's big picture purposes. Because if you understand the big picture, then it's easier to understand the details. Now, of course, the details need to support the big picture. You can't make up your own big picture if the details of the Bible passages don't support that. So that's what we're uh, going to be doing. I I want you to know that we're going just a little bit out of order today. Um, I'm saving what used to be session one on dispensationalism and covenant theology more for session four. I want to talk about some more introductory matters before we talk about um, what we would consider two, theologi- two evangelical theological systems for understanding God's uh, purposes. So we're going to start, I guess that would be page 13 in your handbook. And if you're following online with the PowerPoint slides, I think it'd be roughly 28 or 29 slides uh, into the thing there. The PowerPoint slide that I have up here is a little bit revised. I was uh, tweaking it last night. So there, there'll be a, some differences with the PowerPoint slide, not structurally, but uh, I, I tried to make the fonts a little bit bigger and added a few things here and there, but it, it, you, you basically have probably 98% of what I, what I will have up here. So just to kind of summarize what we're going to be doing, this, you know, the theme is God's plans for the future. And so we're going to be looking at is God's kingdom plans for earth. That's what we're going to be starting with. That'll be on page 13 of your notes. Then we're going to talk about Israel and God's plans. In order to get the Bible storyline right, you have to understand Israel at least have a a sufficient understanding. We're also going to talk about the coming tribulation period. There is a time what we call the day of the Lord that is coming in the future where that's going to be an intense, uh, what I would consider to be a seven-year time period that will precede the coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom on earth. And then in our uh, fourth session, uh, uh, as Joe and I talked about this, we, we wanted to have a session talking about the two main systems within evangelical Christianity when it comes to understanding God's picture purposes. So we're going to talk about dispensationalism and covenant theology, and there's a lot of information there. You could do a whole course just on that particular topic, but I would just like to introduce you to how uh, 
godly, uh, there ends up being two big camps in evangelicalism. They both have godly, intelligent men, but they differ sometimes on the Bible storyline. So we're going to talk about that. And then tomorrow, the, the, the messages will be with Sunday school, and then the sermon will talk about the issue of, of the church and the, and the rapture. And then we're going to talk about, in, in my sermon, we're going to talk about the future of Israel in Romans chapter 11. Obviously, you're going to do a survey of that particular chapter. So again, um, talk about a lot of passages, a lot of things, but I, I guess my goal is, as a result of this, that wherever your knowledge is on God's purposes, that it, it would be more and better as a result of this. Obviously not exhaustive. I mean, I've, I've been studying these things for 25 years. I don't consider myself to have exhaustive knowledge, perfect knowledge on these matters, but I do feel like I've been learning, and hopefully I can share some of the things I've learned with you. So what we'll do here is we're going to move on to our first message, which again is uh, God's kingdom plans for planet Earth. God's kingdom plans for planet Earth. I think it's important for us to understand God's big picture purposes. The details of the Bible and prophecy make more sense if we know what God is doing in history. So if we understand the big picture, it's going to be easier for us to understand the details, where things are going. I do believe after much study that the kingdom of God is the primary theme of Scripture. Now, not all theologians um, agree on this. I would say probably most of them do. Um, there are some others who might say that there's another theme. But I, when, I, when I study Scripture from beginning to end, I think the kingdom of God is, is the theme that really ties all themes together. And that obviously would include the great salvation that we have in Christ. It would include, I, I think God's doing all things for his glory, so... This is consistent with many other great themes that are found in the Bible. But I think when we get, I'll just put it this way, when we get done with the message today, I think you'll at least see why I think it's reasonable to conclude that the kingdom of God is the theme of Scripture. And I would identify the kingdom of God as God's rule over the world through a mediator, which would be mankind. And so, you know, when you read Genesis 1 to 2, we see that God created a wonderful world in six days. But as we'll very shortly see in the lesson here, he also created man to have a role in ruling and subduing the world. So there's a sense in which God is universal king over the universe. Uh, there, there, in a sense, is God's universal kingdom where he rules over all. Nothing happens outside of his power. He never loses control. And then within that, there's uh, what we would call a mediatorial kingdom where God made the universe in the, in the physical earth and, and tasked man with ruling over it. So God has a function for man, which we're going to be talking about. And one of the things that's important to understand is that God wants a successful rule over the earth for his glory. So he creates man to succeed. He gives him all that he needs to succeed. We're not going to be talking a whole lot about the fall of man today, but obviously with Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve, that will bring a, a very interesting twist, not surprising to God, but an interesting twist to the story in which man who's supposed to use his gifts and talents for God is now serving himself. There's usurpation of authority in regard to uh, Satan being the God of this world and those sorts of things. But it's important to understand that God wants a successful rule over the earth for his glory. So man's supposed to have an important role. Man's not to bring himself glory, but he's to do it, um, rule over the earth for the glory of God. 
Now, it's important to understand here is that God's plan for humanity is not a static experience in the sky. And the reason why I say that is is, um, there's been a a history of thought going all the way back to the philosopher Plato and has taken various forms throughout history. And it's even infected the church where there's this idea that um, God's only after the spiritual and matter and physical matters don't really matter anymore. In other words, there's kind of this idea that has oftentimes been held in history is that you know, the highest pursuit of man is to somehow escape the earth and to escape physicality and go live in this spiritual realm forever. And so um, I have some interesting little uh, cartoon sort of things. This is a, for a far side commercial, or not commercial, but cartoon I'm showing my age a little bit here, because if you're probably under 30, you're like, what's Farside, right? <laughs> but anyway, the Farside cartoon, this is kind of like a common depiction of heaven. If you were to like go on Google Images and type in heaven, you get all, all kinds of this sort of thing, where people, when they think of heaven, they think of sitting on a cloud, doing nothing. So you notice, and, and you know, this guy has, supposedly becomes an angel and wears angels, has angels' wings. He's got a halo on his head. In the original cartoon, it's uh, the guy says, I wish I'd have brought a magazine. So here's this guy in heaven and kind of this idea that heaven is supposed, it's, supposed, it's, it's really boring. It's, it's, you're not really doing anything. You know, you're, you're totally divorced from earth and you're kind of like a spirit on a cloud. And that's God's ultimate goal for mankind. Now, I do want to say that I do believe in the era that we live in before the resurrection of the body and Jesus comes again, that, you know, when, when believers die, they go to be Their spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven, which Paul says is a great place to be. So we're not denying that there could be a a period of time. It's certainly not going to be like this. I don't think that depicts the current heaven. But the Bible also talks about that we're we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth in which a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Second Peter three thirteen, and we're going to talk about some other passages that the uh, when you get to the end, you end up having God and human beings on planet Earth. Uh, in, a, in a kingdom of righteousness. And, and, and it is tangible, it is physical. So we're, we, we, we affirm spiritual truths and realities, but we don't affirm where people just say, you know, physical matter, physical things don't uh, matter anymore. Here's another depiction. This is a little more blasphemous in my opinion, but you kind of get the idea here. This is actually a t-shirt company that says, has a, has a logo called Heaven is Boring. So this is the logo on it. Again, notice you got a guy on a cloud laying down, which means he's not doing anything. Again, he has a halo over his head, and he's throwing a paper airplane, kind of signifying there's nothing better else to do. So like I said, you could go, don't do it right now, but you could go to Google Images, type in heaven. You get all kinds of these images. I see them on commercials all the time, and it's just really been embedded and ingrained in people's minds. Like, well, what are we going to do in heaven? Are we just going to sit around all day? There's kind of this idea that we're not going to really know anybody, we might be sitting in a church pew all the time. Again, I have nothing with church pews or those sorts of things. But, you know, when God created Adam, he didn't create Adam and then just say, okay, stay in church all day. I mean, he created him to do things and to be active with the earth. And so this is very common. There was a, uh, a poll done. It's probably been a little while, but uh, it, it, it roughly found that 70% of Americans, no, it's not, not just Christians, but Americans in general, thought that when they go to heaven, again, most people think they're going to heaven, but people thought when they go to heaven someday, it was just going to be a spiritual existence, but no physicality at all. So in other words, kind of this idea that heaven is, pure, is purely just a, just a spiritual thing. 
So I've already made that point here. God expects Mandibrule. So here's what we're going to do here. We're going to, this is what I call a, a kingdom trail or a kingdom paper trail. Because I think if you understand these passages, which are all connected, that you have a better understanding of God's kingdom purposes for man. And I think there's a very close thread that ties all of these together. The most important of the thread here is going to be the Genesis 1 passage. Because in Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation of the, of the earth and everything in it in six days. And uh, then what we're going to end up seeing is that Psalm 8 and Hebrews and Ephesians and these other passages are going to rely on the language of Genesis 1. And we're going to see how all these tie together for understanding the kingdom purpose. Now, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, you know, if you can't, if that's too small to read that up there, you can read it in your Bible. I'm going off of a New American Standard, just, just so you know here. But in Genesis 1, 26, we're told that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea. So notice that man's created in the image of God. And I think the image of God means there, there's a way in which we're made, we're not God, God's of a different substance, but we're made like God and we represent God on the earth. So let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then God says, and let them rule, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that exists on the earth. In verse 27, we're going to see that the image of God applies to both male and female. So in other words, the male and the female and how they're structured and what the ability to procreate is going to be involved with this task over the earth. Because as we're going to see in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So these image bearers who are to represent God and to be like God in some ways, although they're not God, but they're to represent him. They're, they're, they're to be fruitful and to multiply. So this ruling of the world's not just going to be for Adam or just Adam and Eve. It's going to include their descendants. And then also after being told to be fruitful and multiply, we're told they're told to fill the earth and subdue it. So notice the words rule and subdue. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, that's a far cry from Adam being created just to stare in the sky all day or just to be in church all day, right? In other words, he's to be, he's to be very, very active. So I think this particular passage reveals a strong connection between man and earth. Uh, God made man in his image and instructs him to rule over the earth and its creatures. So you really have to let that sink in. I I think it'd be good to just read Genesis 1 over and over and over again and really focus on verses 26 to 28 because this is where man is, in a sense, given his task. I mean, we could say that this is a, uh, some Reformed theologians have called this the cultural mandate where man is to, you know, be involved with the earth and culture and all those sorts of things. I like to call it a kingdom mandate because the words rule and subdue are used of kings in the Bible and it's very active and very powerful. So, and, and you'll read, if you get into Genesis chapter 2, you'll see that Adam was in the garden. He was to start in the garden. He was to cultivate it, and he was to keep it and to be very, very active. So, very strong connection between man and the earth. And again, remember, when Adam's created, 
God formed him from the dust of the earth and then breathed into him the breath of life. So man's very much constructed and constituted to be involved with the earth. That's important to understand. Man's goal is not just to escape being a physical being and live like a, an orb, you know, in the clouds forever. The Hebrew term for rule, I don't mention it here, but it's radah, R-A-D-A-H, radah, is used twice in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and it means have dominion, rule, or dominate. Uh, in Psalm 110, which is a messianic passage referring to Jesus, it talks, it, it, this word is used of the Messiah's rule, coming rule um, over the earth. And by the way, just so you know, we're eventually getting to, well, we'll see how Jesus relates to this. Right now, this is a task that's given to mankind as a whole. We'll see fairly shortly how Jesus relates to that. So, yeah, I, have, I haven't mentioned here what Psalm 110, Ten, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The word for subdue is in the, again, in the Hebrew, this is what's called kabash, K-A-B-A-S-H, kabash. It means to subdue. It's a very, very forceful term. It means dominate or, or to bring into conformity or to bring into bondage. So it's, it's, so it's very active. So now the world that God has created in Genesis 1.31, we're told it's very good, but, it's, but God still expects man to be involved with it, to be involved with the shaping and the, and the controlling and the, and the conforming of it. This term uh, is used in regard to the work of a king in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11. So we should see from those particular terms, they're very strong, they're very powerful um, God is the ultimate king. We could say he's capital K king. But when we look at this sort of terminology, we also see that man is a king in the sense of of a small K who's supposed to be doing what he's doing under the control of God, who's who's the ultimate king. So what we're seeing with Genesis 1 is that the realm of this kingdom rule for man is the earth. That's very important to understand is that God doesn't create Adam and then just whisk him up to heaven. <laughs> he doesn't say, hey, I want you to leave this earth and go focus on heaven now. And by the way, you know, heaven is now where God dwells, and so obviously there's a very, heaven obviously plays a very significant role. I'm pretty convinced when you get to Revelation 21 to 22, though, there's a sense in which heaven and the full presence of God are actually living in the new Jerusalem and on the new earth, which is a tangible place. We'll talk more about that later. I think Psalm 115:16 is interesting because it declares the heavens are the Lord's but the earth he has given to the human race. So that's that's I, I like to say this is man's destiny. Um, now again like I said we live in a period where we have sin and death and there's we end up having this period where you know physical bodies die and then the spirit goes to um, either a bad place or a good place uh, in heaven. But this, this is where man's destiny is, and I think it's, I think it's important to uh, understand that. So the kingdom, it's an earthly kingdom with Adam established as its king. Again, under the sovereignty of God. One of the things that's going to go wrong with the fall is Adam and Eve are going to decide for themselves that they want to be, they want to be the boss. They want to be in charge. They want to interpret reality from their standpoint. They think God's holding out on them. So they're going to act out on their own. They're going to sin. And then there's devastating consequences for that. As a matter of fact, 
really Genesis 3 through Revelation 20 is the process by which God is, is uh, saving man and restoring him and getting him to the place where you know, he, he will f- can function and be in relationship like he's supposed to do. So I mentioned here, number two, God did not create Adam and mankind to rule heaven. We saw that with Psalm 115. And man, I like to use these words. Man is to rule from and over the earth. So when we look at Genesis 1, he's to rule from it and he's to rule over it. And that's going to be important because when we start talking later on about Jesus's kingdom, I'm going to argue uh, for a view that the earth, that when Jesus comes again, that's when he establishes his earthly kingdom, that he's going to reign from the earth and over the earth. Right now, he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. He has all authority as the Messiah. He's positioned as the Messiah, yet the actual reign over the earth is going to take place at his second coming. Now, this leads us to another passage, Psalm 8. So you need to turn there. I, I don't quote all of it here because it's too hard to get all the words on one slide. But if you go to Psalm 8, obviously we're dealing with a pretty long period afterwards. So we're dealing with a, you know, a long time later. And we have a Psalm of David. And what's interesting about this passage is, is this... Uh, some scholars have noted that this is like a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 to 28, because it's, it's very similar. Now, I do want to point out that in the first and last verse of Psalm 8, the glory is given to the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then verse 9 ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So in this psalm, that's going to talk about a very exalted view of man Again, it needs to come under the context of understanding that's within God's sovereignty. So we're not exalting man apart from God, but God has a high, high uh, task for man to do within the sovereignty of God. Now, when you, when you look at Psalm 8 and you come to like verse 4, Psalm 8, 4 says, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you... God, have made him a little lower than God. And notice, you crown him with glory and majesty. So in other words, I mean, there is a kingly aspect to man's responsibilities. I mean, it says here, you, you crown him with glory and majesty. Now, again, David knows that we're, you know, that at this time that man's living in a fallen world and things are messed up. But, but what's really interesting about this passage is we see that the expectation from Genesis 1 doesn't go away. In other words, we don't say, oh, the falls occurred. So, you know, it's no longer about man having a successful, rule, a successful rule over the earth. It's about just going to heaven someday and living on a cloud like the far side cartoon. That's not the case at all. So you crown him with glory and majesty. And then verse 6 says, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Isn't that interesting there? So in other words, he's still supposed supposed to rule. Verse 7 sounds a lot like, and 8 sound a lot like Genesis 1. All sheep and oxen, also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the pass of the seas. So you, you get reiterated there that this is to extend over all creation. So I think what's important about this particular passage is it's indicating that what was expected of man in Genesis 1 is still expected even though the fall has occurred. 
Now, when we get to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be told explicitly that we're not seeing man doing this yet because he's a fallen creature and nature's still run amok and the kingdom of God has not been established yet. So David's not saying this is actually occurring as it should at this point, but it's still something that belongs to man. Uh, you know, I was saved around age 14 and a half, and as I was trying to wrestle with the scriptures, you know, I'd read Genesis 1, and I'd say, well, yeah, you know, Adam, you know, was, he had an uh, important responsibility in regard to the world, but once the fall occurred, then I just thought, you know, our destiny is heaven now, that it doesn't apply. In other words, the, the ruling and subduing the earth doesn't apply anymore. That's just, our goal now is just to live in heaven someday. So I think Psalm 8 refutes that <laughs> because it, it's coming along and telling us that that's still what, uh, what God expects from man. So moving on here. So I've mentioned this, that, you know, this functions a lot like a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And the big picture is that even in a fallen world, God expects man to have a successful rule over the earth in fulfillment of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Again, that, that's, that's man's destiny. Um, I like to say that what, what God is expecting from man, first and foremost, is relationship. In other words, the, you have to be in a right relationship in order to function like you're supposed to. So man can't do this apart from a right relationship with God. In, in other words, when man sinned, he became spiritually alienated from God. If you read Genesis 3, you see that you know, man's spiritual relationship with God is severed. He's not able to be in the presence of God directly like he was before the fall. I think Genesis 3 indicates there's going to be turmoil and tension between humans, between the man and the woman. You get to Cain and Abel and you get murder going on. You also read Genesis chapter 3 and it talks about thorns and thistles, the sweat of your brow, the, the ground's going to, you know, you're going to return to dust. Remember, Adam was supposed to rule over the earth and now we're being told he's going to die and the dust is going to, in a sense, kind of have victory over him, <laughs> at least for a time. Of course, there's physical resurrection that's coming and that'll be reversed someday. But uh, anyway, but anyway, those relations, you know, it, it, man has to be in a right relationship with God in order to function as he should, but Genesis 3 obviously breaks that. Now, this is where we jump ahead in the, in the story. We come to Hebrews 2. And we're going to see another connection here. So if you come to Hebrews 2, again, you might want to go in your Bibles. It might be too hard to read all the, the words that are up there. But what's very interesting about Hebrews 2, 5 to 8, is that the writer of Hebrews, who's clearly you know, writing in light of the coming of Christ, you know, the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of Christ and his sacrifice and how the new covenant's better than the Mosaic law and all those sorts of things. But the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 is going to quote Psalm 8. And we've already established that Psalm 8 is relying on Genesis 1. So this is what theologians often like to refer to as intertextual connections, where the Bible writers themselves are relying on earlier statements of Scripture, and they're connecting dots themselves. So this, this is how I call it a kingdom thread, because we see Genesis 1, 26 to 28 picked up in Psalm 8. Now the writer of Hebrews is going to pick up on Psalm 8, which is picking up on Psalm 1. See the connection here? So there's, uh, this is very important. So when you look at Hebrews 2, verse 5. Now again, remember, the point of the book is to show the superiority of Jesus and his sacrifice and his new covenant. But we're told in Hebrews 2, 5, for he, God, 
did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So there's several interesting things here. One of them is he's talking about a world to come. And the world would be a real tangible planet. It's what we call the eschaton, the, the, what, what's to come in the future, what's to, what's, to come in the, what's to come in the last days. So he did not subject the angels the world to come. So this shows you that the writer of Hebrews, although he rightly points to many great truths Christ is presently doing with his priestly ministry and what his atonement has brought to his people, and there's all these wonderful truths we're experiencing, he still talks about a world to come which shows that there's, it's, you know, not everything's fulfilled in this age. A lot of good things have been fulfilled, but we still live in a fallen world. He's talking about a world to come. But also notice in verse 5, he did not subject to angels the world to come, which goes to show as powerful as they are, they're not God's image bearers in the sense that man is, and God has tasked man to rule the earth. I think in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul will say, don't you know, referring to to believers that you're, you're going to be judging angels someday. So you should be able to you know, get your life right now when it comes to dealing with each other because you're going to be judging angels someday. So angels, as important as they are, they're not the ones tasked to rule the earth. Man is tasked to rule the earth. And then um, when you get to verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says, but one has testified somewhere saying, and we can do a little research and find out it's Psalm 8. <laughs> he doesn't say it's this Psalm of David, but he, it, is, it is clearly Psalm 8. And then you have the quotation, you know, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Notice you have crowned him with glory and honor. So again, just like Psalm 8, this indicates that man has positionally has a kingly role. And have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. In other words, you've, God has tasked man with a successful rule over the earth. Now, in, when you read the, the next verse 8, as the writer of Hebrews comes in with his statements here, he says, for in subjecting all things to him, in other words, all things to man, all things in the creation, he left nothing that is not sub- subject to him, but... There's a very important but here. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So you see that connection there? Man's supposed to be ruling the earth, but we're not seeing it yet. And I think the way the grammar of this is is structured, it's really indicating that this hope is still in the future. This is connected with the world to come. So in this sense, it seems to me that the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging a fallen world. And the world to come. So we don't see all things subjected, you know, to him yet. That is something that is still coming in the future. Now, when you come to Ephesians, and this is kind of, this is where we start making a, a turn to the person of Christ. Yes. Sure. When you look at verse 9, the short answer is going to be, it's going to end up being both. Because he's going, to, he's going to start talking about Christ here. And this is where we're pivoting right now. So in Ephesians 2, he's bringing up Christ. And in Ephesians 1 passage, we're going to see, what's going to end up happening here is what we're going to see is that in the, uh, in the biblical worldview, there's the concept of the one and the many, where from mankind is going to come an ultimate man, who, who Paul refers to as the last Adam in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And so 
this is where we're going with this, is that obviously can man in a fallen world subject, have all things subjected in actuality? The, the, the answer is no. In a fallen world, that can't happen and it doesn't happen. So what's going to have to happen is there has to be a one, a last Adam, a Messiah, who has no sin, who can make this happen. So this is where we begin the pivot to Jesus. So in Ephesians 1, you know, 22 and 23, we see you know, this is in regard to Jesus. So you have this really high, what we call a Christology, an exaltation of Jesus. Uh, in, you know, in verse 20, we're, we're told that Jesus is at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So in other words, Jesus, as a result of his death, and resurrection and ascension is exalted at the right hand of the Father. He possesses all authority. We're told in verse 22 that he, in reference to God, put all things in subjection under his feet, which most scholars think is a quotation of Psalm 8, Psalm 8, 6. Now, it's interesting, in Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, the command to subject all things was given to mankind as a whole. But now we're seeing that it's specifically related to Jesus. He put all things in subjection under his feet. So again, you have to, again, to ask the question, well, who, when it comes to the earth being subjected, is it to mankind or is it to Jesus? And the answer is both, because Jesus is the representative of mankind. And we'll see that unfold as we go here, how we end up being related to this. But Jesus is the ultimate man. He is the one who, because of his death, resurrection, and ascension, has been granted all, uh, all authority. So he's the one who's going to make this happen. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the... Uh, Verses 20 and following, it's talking about, or Paul's talking about, uh, a resurrection program. And there's all kinds of great things to talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, but I just I want to focus mostly on how the, uh, Paul brings up the reference of Jesus in regard to Psalm 8, verse 6. So, now he's, he's talking about a resurrection program here. And, you know, he's, if you read verses 20 and following, just to summarize, he talks about, you know, there's this resurrection program. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means his bodily resurrection is the first and the pattern for the rest of our resurrection. He talks about in uh, verse 23 that after Christ's resurrection, there'll be those who are Christ at his coming. And that's like a second phase of the resurrection where, where believers at his coming get glorification. Then he talks about a then comes the end, which I think is a third stage of the resurrection, which I think would be after a coming earthly millennial kingdom. But he says here that then comes the end, verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Obviously, that's in reference to Jesus. And then we're told in verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So notice, he must reign. I mean, this has to happen for God's purposes to be accomplished. Verse 26 says, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Verse tw- and then verse 27 says, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
Now, does that, that should sound pretty familiar by now, right? I mean, we've seen it in Psalm 8. We've seen it in, in uh, Hebrews 2. We've seen it in Ephesians. Now we're seeing it in 1 Corinthians. So again, we're, we're seeing this, this kingdom trail where uh, the earth is important. Man subject, having, putting all things, all things being subjected to him is very important. But again, like Ephesians 1, we're seeing that Psalm 8, 6 is now being applied to Jesus who's the ultimate man. Now, this would be a great time to go into the doctrine of Jesus and his messiahship. But the, I think the thing that we have to understand at the point is that from, from the many of mankind, and in a passage that we'll be looking at later today, Genesis 3.15 promised that when the fall took place, that there was going to be a battle between your seed and her seed. In other words, the people of, the, of Satan and then the, the people of God, and that one coming from the woman, that there was going to be a he who would defeat Satan, who would defeat the power behind the serpent. So from man comes Jesus. Obviously, he's different in the sense that he's sinless, um, but he's the one who's qualified uh, to be able to make these things happen. As a matter of fact, this is a little footnote here. Um, I personally think that when Jesus was doing his nature miracles, when he was doing things with animals and multiplying food and walking on water, I think that those were glimpses and demonstration of his earthly kingdom. I think they were more than that. They were doing some other things like saving lives and feeding people and all sorts of things. But Jesus was showing power over nature with his nature miracles. And I believe his miracles were snapshots of what it's going to be like on a global scale uh, when he comes again, kind of like with resurrection, like, uh, you know, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but there's no indication that Lazarus was whisked to heaven, never to die again. I mean, he died again. Um, disease was mostly wiped out in the area because of Jesus's miracles, but I take it those people probably got older and died again someday. So those were snapshots and glimpses of what the kingdom of God would be like. So not only does Jesus have that authority and power, but he's actually able to demonstrate it with his, with his miracles. So just to really hammer this point home, God's will for man to rule the earth is ultimately found in Jesus, who is identified, if we were to put this all together, you know, Jesus in Galatians 3.16 is referred to as the ultimate seed. Jesus is the seed, seed of Abraham. That goes all the way, even back to Genesis 3.15, where there was going to be a seed of the woman who is going to have victory and reverse the curse. Um, so he's the ultimate seed. He's the ultimate Messiah. He's the ultimate son of David, which makes him the Messiah. Um, and he's ultimate man. Like, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, 45, where Jesus is actually called, called last Adam. I guess I could look at this. I have it in front of me. Yeah, the last Adam. He's referred to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, in Revelation 19, 15... You know, I believe that this, the one who presently has this authority because of his death, resurrection, and ascension is going to actualize that reign with his second coming. Now, I'm pointing to a verse here in Revelation 19.15. And Revelation 19, verses 11 and following, almost all evangelical scholars would see this as the second coming of Jesus to earth. So in Revelation 19, through the end of the chapter, talks about heaven is open, talks about um, Jesus' second coming to earth. And there's an interesting verse here that we're told. We're told that from his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
In this sense, I think a sword is likened to the authority of his proclamation. Uh, This kind of language is used in Isaiah 11 and other passages that he's so authoritative that he can speak like a sword and it's authoritative. So from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. In other words, the nations that are at war with him. And notice, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So that talks about that when Jesus comes again. This is something at his second coming that is presented as something that is coming into force at this time. So he will rule them with a rod of iron. So we've already seen all kinds of passages where, you know, there's supposed to be a successful rule take place on the earth. And now we see that Jesus with his second coming, he's coming to rule them with a rod of iron. So I strongly believe uh, Jesus obviously presently is king. Uh, When you believe in him, you become a son of the kingdom. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount and other instruction in the New Testament is kind of a kingdom ethic by which we're to live by. But the one who's presently exalted at the right hand of the Father, when he comes again at his second coming, that's when he begins to reign over the earth. Uh, His first coming did a lot of things, but one of them was to be the suffering servant and to die on the cross and to make atonement uh, for his people. When he comes again in glory, that's when you're going to see the actual reign upon the earth. Now, this is where things get interesting for us. Not that it hasn't been interesting before, but this is an important truth. Jesus will share his reign with those who believe in him. So this is where we see that Jesus is the one who makes the kingdom mandate happen, but for those who are in union with him, they get to reign as well. So again, it ends up being a one and a many sort of thing. Now, I actually don't have this uh, in your notes or in the PowerPoint, but I want you to notice uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a, uh, I believe this is a messianic psalm, and by a messianic psalm, I mean where the psalmist is explicitly thinking of the coming Messiah. So a messianic psalm is where, I think there's several occasions where David was actually writing of the coming Messiah. Psalm 110 is another messianic psalm, and there's others as well. But in Psalm 2, you know, we're told, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I mean, that's a prediction that in the realm of the rebellion that's taking place, God is going to establish his Messiah. In other words, they, they, they may scoff at God, but a day's coming where his king is going to come in the realm where the rebellion is, and he's going to fix things. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So in other words, God is going to give his man, the Messiah, a worldwide kingdom. And then in verse 9, the verse 9 is the one I really want you to notice because we're going to see this one used in Revelation chapter 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. 
So that's very similar to Revelation 19.15, right? Jesus is going to come. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. So in other words, when, he, when, when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom, he breaks the opposition and he rules the earth. Now I want you to notice here that in this passage, it's talking specifically about what the Messiah is going to do. It's not talking about Messiah's people. But when you get into the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to own this because he knows he's the Messiah. And he's going to say, I'm going to share this with, with, with those who belong to me. So at this particular point, I want you, there's some passages I want us to look at here in the, in the book of Revelation. So if you come to Revelation chapter 2, Now, what's going on in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you may be familiar with this, is that Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is a message that Jesus is giving concerning the seven churches of Asia Minor. And If you read this, you'll see these churches aren't reigning. They're not in the kingdom of God yet. I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> they're, they're being opposed by Satan. They're being opposed by all kinds of things that are going on. Some of them are thrown in prison. And so, and some of the churches are doing better than others. And Jesus usually ends his messages to the churches and he'll say something like, to he who overcomes, I'm going to give. And then you, then you get a, a list of things that are coming. So in other words, Jesus knows that the church is, is facing withering persecution from Satan, from wicked people. This isn't a time of a kingdom reign, but it's a time of being faithful with the gospel and evangelism and to the truth in a time of persecution. Okay. Now, to the church of Thyatira in uh, Revelation 2, I'll, I'll start in verse 25. Revelation 2, 25. Nevertheless, so this is what Jesus is telling the church of Thyatira, what you have, hold fast until I come. In other words, Jesus, until his second coming. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, and this is where you get Psalm 2, quotation, I, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. So, now, if, if your, your Bible may, like my Bible puts it in all caps, which indicates it's a quote from Psalm 2, yours may be in bold or something. Usually most Bibles will set that off. In other words, Jesus is applying a psalm that was said to be of him, and now he's saying, this is what's going to be true for those who overcome. And obviously an overcomer would be a Christian, you know, somebody who's truly believed in Jesus. So I think that's very interesting there, that Jesus is going to share his reign with his people. Now if you look in Revelation 3, 21, to the message to the church at Laodicea, there's a similar message here. In Revelation 3.21, we're told that he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. In Luke 1.32-33, that's referred to as, as David's throne. In Luke, the, the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1.32-33 that he's going to sit on the throne of his father David and he's going to rule over the house of Judah forever. So this is the David's throne. So I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And then Jesus makes an analogy here. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So notice there's two thrones here. So I think that father's throne, that's the right hand of the father in heaven. If you read Psalm 110, it talks about that the Messiah is going to have a session at the right hand of the father. If you read Acts chapter 2, Peter's very explicit that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the father. 
And I think that's where Jesus currently is. He's been exalted as Messiah. He has all authority in heaven and earth, as Matthew 28 says. But it also says in Psalm 110, too, that there's coming a day where he's going to stretch, God will stretch forth his strong scepter from Zion, which is Jerusalem, which is on the earth. And at that particular time, he will begin to reign over the earth. So really what Jesus is saying is, is I have overcome and I've sit down on my father's throne. For those of you who overcome, you're going to sit with me on my throne, which is the throne of David, which takes place on the earth. And then when he rules, we'll be ruling with him. So obviously Jesus is the capital K king of the coming millennial kingdom, the earthly kingdom. And yet those of us who belong to him are also going to reign as well. Now that takes us to, I guess I've gone through the first couple here. Now we're we're coming to Revelation chapter 5 verse 10. Revelation chapter 5 verse 10. Actually, I want you to read... um, in verse 9 as well. Because this, this is a passage which links the cross with the, with the coming kingdom. As a matter of fact, I would say not only does uh, what Jesus did on the cross is multidimensional. One of them is to pay the penalty for sin. Another, though, is that it, it's also the basis for uh, the kingdom of God that will be established. Uh, in uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, that talks about that Christ is reconciling all things through the blood of his cross and all things in that context is everything that's been created, material and immaterial, he's going to fix it. It doesn't mean everybody's saved. It means the cross means everything will get fixed. <laughs> um, now in verse 9, now this is a heavenly throne room scene. You should understand this. Revelation 4 and 5 is this great heavenly throne room scene which takes place in connection with the coming day of the Lord that's going to be poured out on the earth someday. But the thing I want you to focus on is there's this song in heaven about Jesus, who's the lamb. And we're told in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. That's a reference to Christ's death, right? And purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So in other words, Jesus died. There's going to be representatives of all people groups in his kingdom. Now, when you look at verse 10, it's also told that you, in reference to Jesus the Lamb, have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And notice what the last part says, and they will reign upon the earth. So in other words, when you become a believer in Jesus, you become a son of the king. You're forgiven of your sin. You're positionally a kingdom, but what's going to happen someday? They will reign upon the earth. Now, again, remember, the book of Revelation is being written in the 90s, 60 or so years after the death of Christ. We're seeing here that the reign of Jesus and the saints is still uh, looking towards the future, which would be in connection with the second coming. So I think those passages in Revelation are strongly indicating that because of Jesus, those who are in him are going to reign uh, someday. As a matter of fact, if you come to Revelation 22... Now, I I believe in Revelation chapter 20 that after the second coming of Jesus in Revelation 19, it talks about a thousand-year reign. And it talks about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, that those who are martyred, they come to life and they reign with him for a thousand years. The Bible teaches a thousand-year earthly reign of the Messiah after the second coming. But But I'm jumping ahead here to what's called the eternal state. 
um, the new earth, the, the new Jerusalem conditions. So if you read Revelation 19, 11 and following, it talks about the second coming. If you read Revelation 20, it talks about a thousand year reign. And then we're told at the end, you know, towards the end of Revelation 11 that after the thousand years were completed, and it talks about some things going on. Then you get to Revelation 21 and 22, which is talking about really the final state of all matters. And so when you look at Revelation 22, verse 3, we're told, Revelation 22, 3 says, There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. So that's interesting there. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Which goes to tell you there that on this new earth, again, you have to read the first couple of verses of Revelation 21 to see I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and then there's a new Jerusalem. And so this is the context for this. But you actually have God and the Lamb on the throne. So I think at this particular point, you have the full presence of the Godhead on the new earth. And you say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but I think the Holy Spirit is obviously present. He's omnipresent to begin with. I still think he's indwelling believers with his new covenant ministry. But what's interesting here is you see, you see them there. Um, you might actually want to keep, a, keep your finger here. And I, I do want to mention one thing from 1 Corinthians 15. I didn't mention this when I was there earlier, but I want to now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15... We're told what happens after Jesus has his successful kingdom reign. In verse 24, we're told that, you know, then comes the end. And I think that indicates the end of Jesus's earthly kingdom reign. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So isn't that interesting there? It talks about a transition, It talks about the fact that he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. If you look at verse 28, we're told that when all things are subjected to him, which is Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So I think that's indicating that when Jesus has his successful kingdom reign over the earth, there's a sense in which he presents, I I like to call this the ultimate mission accomplished. Mission accomplished to the Father. And then we enter the eternal state, which I think is even a higher uh, level of reality, but still on the earth, but it's a higher level of reality. So it indicates that um, Jesus' Davidic kingdom, his messianic kingdom, it's successful. He hands it to the Father. So when you come to Revelation 22, we see here that it's not like Jesus stops reigning, (laughs) but there's a merger. It's like his, his successful reign over the earth merges with the Father's eternal kingdom, and you see um, God, you know, you see the throne of God and of the Lamb in it. Notice his bondservants will serve him. So in other words, those who are his servants, they, they still serve and worship him. But I want you to notice now verse, verse uh, five. Revelation 22 verse five is really the last description of the new earth, because when you hit verse six, It's just the epilogue to the book of Revelation. So this is kind of like the last description of of the future. And what's interesting about this, I like to call this, uh, they lived happily ever after. I mean, this is kind of the end of the story here. Um, Genesis 1's like, you know, once upon a time and in the beginning, literally in the beginning. 
And then, like with a lot of stories, there's kind of a, a, an interesting, nefarious, evil twist, and there's the fall and all this sort of stuff. But here you got it. Christ has had a successful mediatorial kingdom reign. It's merged into the eternal kingdom. So we're told in verse 5 that there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And then what does it say at the end? And they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that interesting there? The last statement about the people of God is reigning. New Jerusalem, the new earth. Remember what was, what was told to man in Genesis 1, 26 to 28? Rule and subdue the earth. And now we see here the very last statement describing the people of God is that they're reigning forever and ever. But again, as they reign, what's the context? It's within the presence of God and the Lamb who are on the throne so it's not man reigning on his own apart from God, but it's under the sovereignty of God. So I, I think the ultimate thing is, when, he, when you get down to it, the ultimate thing that God is looking for is for man to love God, to be in relationship with him, and for man to use all the gifts and capacities and talents for his glory and to do so in the presence of God. So when you get to this picture, when it's all said and done, we're on a real tangible planet Earth Sin is done away with, and people are worshiping God. They love him. They acknowledge the kingship of God and the lamb, and yet they're also reigning forever. And so, in in a sense, it's the end, but it's also the beginning. And so, anyway, so I think that that, to kind of summarize, the Father and the Son are ruling on the throne in the new Jerusalem. The people of God are reigning. Like I said, I think that's the happily ever after. If you look at verses 24 to 26 of chapter 21, this, by the way, this is the same time period. This is the time period of the new earth. We're, we're told in Revelation 21, 24, that the nations will walk by its light, by the light of the new Jerusalem, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the glory there seems to be I think this is very reliant on the language of Isaiah 60 to 66, which talks about the nations bringing their best to Jerusalem. So in other words, there's culture, there's real things going on. This is not sitting on a cloud with nothing to do. This is the earth and everything in it being used for the glory of God. The nations are in harmony. There's no longer any war. There's no longer any racism. And the nations and their kings are bringing their glory into the city. That's also mentioned in verse 26 as well. So I guess I would just submit that, you know, I don't, I don't have time to go back to those uh, cartoon things that I put up. But, you know, remember the Far Side cartoon, Wish I'd Have Brought a Magazine, the, the T-shirt that shows a guy sitting on a cloud, you know, throwing a, uh, a paper airplane. I mean, that's not, that's not what the Bible pictures. The Bible pictures um, a thriving, vibrant relationship with God and with other people on a tangible planet because that's what we were made to do. And so... Anyway, that's, I guess that's kind of message one there. I, I, told, I told you as we do this, I want to leave a little bit of time for question and answer. And then also, obviously, I feel free to talk with people afterwards, sessions or whatever. But I think we have a few minutes. If anybody, probably should have mentioned at the beginning that we would have questions and answers, so you could be thinking of those. But if anybody had any uh, questions or thoughts related to what we've talked about. So just raise your hand, and uh, if you could speak loudly, say your name first, and uh, and then if you could repeat the question for the tape, that'd be great. Okay. Andrew? Okay. Okay.
Yeah. Yeah. I think the pr- I, right, yeah. I, I I think that when it, so the question has to do is how does this relate to us now, and I, I think it's multi. Is that right? Basically, right. In other words, what's the applicability of this truth to our current situation? Is there any? Is there any? The answer would be yes. First of all, this is part of our hope. In other words, and Jesus is saying, for the one who overcomes, you get this. So if you just go off a of revelation. The, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is using that hope as a motivation to overcome now. So in other words, no matter how bad persecution is, no matter how bad this fallen world is, and it is awful. I mean, we acknowledge that, right? I mean, people we love die. We die. People are taken from us too early. Relationships are broken on and on and on. The kingdom dwarfs all that. So the thing is, is, uh, and I think Satan, I think part of the way, you know, it doesn't necessarily take away someone's salvation if they have a wrong view of heaven, if they think it's just a spiritual existence in the sky. But I do think that sort of thinking robs people of their hope. And so, the, 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 in other words, we have hope for the future. That's a very tangible hope based in Christ. And now here's the second application, which would be, is that we live in, Paul called this a present evil age. And Jesus was calling on the churches of Revelation to persevere and to overcome. But part of the reason why we're doing that is we're recruiting people to be a part of that kingdom. <laughs> so in other words, we're spreading the gospel um, I think we can do what John the Baptist said, repent and you know, flee the wrath to come. In other words, there's a sense in which we're recruiting people to get on the right side of history. Believe in Jesus the Messiah, have your sins forgiven, and be a part of the, part of the restoration of all things. So in other words, I, I would view my duty as an individual Christian, as the church, is to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God by taking the gospel to the world, to tell people about this, to avoid... Because there's the other side of this too. We haven't talked about it, but there's also the lake of fire for people that don't do this. So there's judgment, there's wrath coming upon the unbeliever, but there's the glories of the new earth. Second Peter 3.13, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So I, I think our, our duty is the church. I don't think we bring in the kingdom of God, but we're proclaiming the message that allows people to enter it when it's established on the earth. Yeah. Yeah. I think we see it like Hebrew. It, it's, it's in the world to come where we're seeing that finally subdued. Now, I do think understanding that because the world matters, because God is going to restore this world, there's a sense in which I appreciate its beauty. There's a sense in which I can, if I can responsibly be responsible with it and not cavalier with it, so I, I think there's a sense in which we take salt, we're salt and light, and we take that to a lost world. So I think we, we do care about those things. But ultimately, the transformation of it all is going to be at the second coming. <clears throat> all right. Another? Okay. Okay. Great question. Is the question, if everybody's reigning, what are they reigning over? And that's a great question. I think it's really cool. We had a question from India, by the way. So... Thank you, whoever's calling from there. The, the answer would be is reigning is, mul- is multidimensional. So in other words, Revelation 21 does talk about the kings of the earth. So I do think there are actually geopolitical leaders during the millennium and the eternal state. But I think reigning also involves whatever, whoever's a part of this kingdom, wherever God has gifted and, ta- and made them talented, 
that they're going to be reigning in their area. I mean, in other words, like if you read Isaiah 65, it talks about the planting of vineyards. It talks about the building of houses. So in other words, if you're a farmer, you're going to be reigning in your farming. If you're an architect, you'll be doing that. If you're a musician, you'll be reigning in that area. So I I think reigning (coughs) includes governmental function, but I also think it means being good in your area and being a good steward of what God has given you. So that's how I would answer that. All right, any other? Yes. So I'm, I'm Simon. And, uh, Hi, Simon. I think you, you hit on it really well at the beginning. I just want to clarify as well. The notion that the spiritual relationship that Adam and Eve had with uh, God was destroyed by the fall. Right. That restoration doesn't happen until Christ basically restores the spiritual relationship of all men with the Father as well. But yeah. Yeah. They're such that they now see Christ's authority as solely the spiritual. The spiritual. Great. Yeah, great question. In other words, how come the focus has become so much on the spiritual and we've lost sight of the physical? I have, in my seminary class, I spend six hours on that topic. Basically, what it comes from, it comes from the ideas of Plato the philosopher before the time of Christ. With his theory of forms and Platonism, he set forth a trajectory in which the spiritual is so elevated over the physical that the physical is no longer important. So like Socrates, who influenced Plato, he was, like, he was actually looking forward to his own death because he could get rid of the physical. He, he longed to exist as a spirit and not as, as a body. That sort of heresy crept into the Christian church in the form of Gnosticism, you got some people who were saying Jesus wasn't even human because being human's bad. There's always been, I call, I call it a spiritual vision model virus. There's always been this virus that goes back from Plato and also the Eastern religions. I mean, the Eastern religions are very much, ele- you know, treating physical things as, as illusion. So you see that with Hinduism and other Eastern religions. So there's always been this worldview, Platonism, Eastern religions have oftentimes driven it into people's minds that spiritual and physical aren't compatible that it's just spiritual pursuits and we've got to get rid of the physical. And the, the key antidote to that is Genesis 1.31. When God was done with the six days of creation, he looked at it and said, it is very good. So God's after, in, in, in Acts 3.21, Peter talks about the restoration of all things of which the prophets spoke. That obviously includes the salvation of God's image bearers, but it also includes the restoration of planet Earth, if you read Isaiah 11, 6 to 9, it talks about the animal kingdom being restored. If you read Isaiah 65, 17, it talks about agriculture and all those things working as they should. The desert blooming like a rose. So for most of history, and I would, I would liken it to bad theology and bad views of the kingdom and va- bad views of the millennium. The church for most of its history has looked at, not the early, early church, but they've looked at those things and they've spiritualized them. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, talks about there's coming a day where the Lord's going to be reigning from Jerusalem and all the nations are going to stream to it. And there's going to be a time of international harmony and they're going to lay down their weapons of warfare. There's people who will say, oh, that's just people being saved into the church. I believe the church is super important and it's a phase of God's kingdom program, but there's just been so much spiritualizing of the physical. So here's an important thing to keep in mind. We are not putting down the importance of the spiritual. I mean, Jesus created all things visible and invisible. God is spirit. There's a sense in which we have an immaterial part of us. But it's not an either or, but a both and. You know, God's world includes spiritual realities and physical realities. 
and both are important. Okay, good. Those are great questions. There's one right here. Go ahead. Hi, Claire. Right. What if you don't know what you did? Are you about like both now and in the future or mostly just finding out what you do now? Yeah, in the future. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think it'll be really clear. First of all, there's one thing you said that is totally right. Actually, all of it's right, but I'm saying in Luke 19, 11 and following, Jesus gives the parable of the nobleman. And, and he talks about his going away and then coming back to reign. And he, he, he actually... When he comes back to reign, he actually holds his, those who belong to him accountable for how they acted when he was gone, and then he rewards them accordingly. So there is a sense in which how we, how we use our gifts and talents for the, God's glory in this age will impact what we're doing in the future. I guess I would just say is, uh, I think it'll be very clear when Jesus comes again. Like we may have difficulty now, particularly being a, if you're a younger believer, kind of knowing where your role is and your gifts and all that sort of thing. I think it'll probably be pretty clear when Jesus comes again. The one thing that's interesting, the, the paradigm that's presented in Scripture, both in Daniel 7 and in the book of Revelation, is that the people of God are persecuted by Satan and the nations now. So that brings a certain a dynamic to how we do things. We're in a hostile world as we're trying to minister. But, but the situation's flipped and the people of God are actually reigning over the earth when Jesus comes again. So there's going to be a different dynamic in play. So I don't know how much, I mean, obviously I think there's, you know, we're the same person from now to then and there may be some carryover as far as our gifts and talents but the situation will be a little different. I, I don't have the perfect answer for you, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be made clear just because of the, <laughs> the resurrection that takes place, the presence of Christ on the earth. I think it's, there won't be much uh, cloudiness on that issue. Okay. Uh, thanks, for everyone, for your questions. Our next session will begin in about 15 minutes at 1030 on Israel and Israel and God's plans, right. and that will be very interesting, and we'll be back online in about 15 minutes, right at 10.30. Take a break. Feel free to uh, get some refreshments or use the restroom. <laughs>